<clears throat> and I also have one more uh, announcement quickly to, to uh, mention this morning. And that's next weekend. We have our, uh, it's become a shepherd tradition, our Thanksgiving soup and pie potluck. So it's very simple. It's ba- I mean, who doesn't like soup on autumn, autumn days, you know, on a, on a cool fall day? So next week is soup and pie. And uh, there's some sign-up sheets out there that you can sign up for either soup or pie and, uh, or both. And you can also sign up to help set up or take down decorate. I think we're going to, I think we're setting up Friday, I believe, uh, Friday afternoon. Is that right, Bill? Yeah. So we'll be setting up then, and uh, we can sure use the help to do that. So there's sign-ups right out there to, to do that. And um, if we don't have your phone number, uh, you can fill out one of the cards, please, and, and give it to me or drop it in the box over here, and we'll, we'll get your phone number. Uh, Mary Jane DeVore will be calling you uh, later on to kind of arrange who's bringing what. So uh, those of you who don't know Mary Jane, you will get to know her if you don't sign up. So, <laughs> and she's a very pleasant lady. She's very, very, she's dear. So you get to get to meet and talk with, with Mary Jane. Let's pray this. Let's pray together this morning. Eugene Peterson uh, he de- he described the Sabbath as a time to receive silence and then let it deepen into gratitude. So Father, on this day of rest. Uh, as we prepare to pray and settle into silence, and we want to allow the, the thankfulness to bubble up inside, inside of us. And we pray with the psalmist who said, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters of things that are too wonderful for, for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul. And like a winged child with his mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Father, we thank you for the church, this beautiful, multicultural, intergenerational family that is gathering today around the world in so many countries. And we ask that you revive us, that you sanctify us, that you make every church a true house of prayer for all the nations, that you set our hearts on fire again with the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we take a moment right now of silence to take these big prayers and and bring them down uh, to our earthly place, our level. And Father, we take these moments just in silence to name some friends, some members of our local church, who are just finding life a little bit difficult these days. And so, Father, we want to mention them in our spirits to you this morning. Father, we thank you for that, that uh, the music we heard this morning and the words that are so rich that you still do heal and you still listen and you still hear us. And you hear us when we, we pray and we bring people to you that um, are lonely, are ill, um, are without work, dealing with family conflicts, 
Anything that's just making life just a little bit tough, we bring them to you and we continue to come back to you. And we just thank you for those words that, uh, that Kaylee was singing, that we, we do come to you and we need come to you over and over and over again. So Father, we, we commit this to you, we commit the time to you, we commit the people that we love to you. And we pray that you use your scripture this morning to change our hearts, to do surgery on our souls, and that we find comfort in your words. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing on, in, uh, in Mark we're chapter 4. Uh, this, is a, um, this is a restaurant, a cafe in Dallas, or was, it's closed down called Dan's Lakewood Cafe, and uh, it was one of the few places that was open 24 hours. Uh, it was close to Dallas Seminary where we were studying, and uh, we used to hang out there at night and in the early mornings and go to Dan's Lakewood Cafe. I think I may have shared this place to you. It's, it had a place, special place in my heart. You could buy a, an egg and onion sandwich and a cup of coffee for about a buck and a half, and uh, so we would go there for egg and onion sandwich and a cup of coffee and argue theology. Uh, it's, the, it's the place in the morning at night where uh, what Paul Simon calls the ragged people would hang out. And uh, so you see all kinds there. And we would go and, and argue just about whatever, you know. Just, and I always joke that I probably learned more theology there than I did in my classroom. Uh, because you get to kind of hash it out and, and you hear other people's opinions. And, uh, and one of the, I remember a very distinctly one argument discussion we had about this parable, the parable of the sower. And we were all arguing about the different types of soil, different types of soil and about the dirt and, and you know, where, where they came in and, and what they meant and all this. And we all kind of just saw it as the kind of dirt was who was saved and who wasn't saved. In other words, who's going to heaven and who's not. And uh, as if we could put people into these four little categories. And we would say, well, you know, we'd talk about, well, if you believe that's once saved, always saved, and the person is, uh, it sprouts up, and at least there's life there, even though maybe it withers later on, the person still would be saved or go to heaven, and we would kind of discuss all that and argue it, and it was a total waste of time. Uh, it really was a waste of time because, <clears throat> not that the discussion wasn't worthwhile or anything, but we had totally misinterpreted the, the, the parable. We had taken the parable out of its context, and when you do that, when you take these pieces out of the context and you, and you take them away from what Mark is doing and his story that he's telling, you start filling in the gaps with your own assumptions, your own beliefs, your own, your own prejudices, and your own biases. And so we were talking about whether this was, whether who was saved or not. Heaven's not even mentioned in the passage. It's not even there. It's not, it's not what it's about. It's about something else. It's about something that's, that God is doing in place in the, on the earth. And so we, we totally were, were arguing about something that didn't matter. And it was just, yeah, a waste of time. And this is what happens when we kind of have these preconceived ideas and we have this one area of theology or, or Christian doctrine or something and we superimpose it on everything. And that's what we were doing with the parable of the sowers. That's not what it's about. It's about totally something else. Uh, Mark tells us up to these first three chapters that Jesus was teaching. He was taught, he taught, he taught. 
but he never really shared much of the content except for maybe a couple of comments during a healing or something like that. And that's really about it. But in chapter 4, we have the first of two extended sermons that Mark records. And we'll see another one later on. But this is the first one, and it's a list of parables. And the parable of the sowers, sower takes up the most space in Mark. It's very important to Mark. Uh, it's, it's one of the most important, important parables that Jesus teaches. In fact, Jesus himself says that if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand anything else. So it's important that we understand this and not be like a bunch of pretentious seminary students who think we know what we're talking about and know that we can put people in these neat little categories. I mean, how arrogant can you be, right? So, but anyway, there you go. Uh, but what is just exactly what is a parable? We ought to look at that and say, what exactly are we talking about here? What does it do? What does it say? It's... Um, it kind of it belongs first of all in the in the genre of Jewish wisdom literature. Uh, there's a Hebrew word for it called mashal, and it appears throughout the Old Testament, ancient literature. But throughout the Old Testament, it kind of has the idea of of wisdom. Uh, you know, like the stories that say the moral of the story is that's the kind of thing that that's here. It's a wisdom kind of literature, uh, but a little bit different than with Jewish wisdom literature. Uh, this is something that Jesus is doing that's kind of different. He is actually using parables to inaugurate something, to start something, to basically turn your world upside down. It's more than that. Uh, the Jewish, one good example, you might remember Nathan direct, uh, confronting David about his sin with Bathsheba. And he tells this story about this poor man who has a lamb, who treats the lamb like a child, actually. And a rich man who has a visitor coming and he wants to provide food for his visitor, but he doesn't want to kill one of his cattle or one of his lambs, so he takes the poor man's lamb. And David is outraged by it, and Nathan says, you are that man. And so he uses that parable, that wisdom story, to confront David about his sin. Parables are also about the world that is changing, that God is doing something here, and he wants to tell us about it. It's how something is turning upside down, and, the, and the, the disciples would have recognized sort of the style of the story, but then they would have said, where is he teaching this? Where is he getting this? Because it's something that radical. It's not only just describing what God is doing, it is actually provoking and prompting some, what God is doing, and he's inviting us to join in. So it's a little bit more than just a, 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 a this is the moral of the story kind of story. It's more than a dialogue. It's more than a, than, a, than a parody or an allegory. He's actually doing something and describing what God is doing, and he's actually inviting us to join in in what God is doing. And parables are stories about God, but they're not about God. They are stories about what God is doing, but they are stories not about God. There are stories about uh, weddings and banquets there's stories about muggings, uh, family conflicts. There's stories about uh, treasure hunting. There's stories about animal husbandry and farming and, and agriculture. But they're about God. And we'll talk about that, why that is true later on. So the, we see the parable of the, so, the sower that Addie just read. And he starts off talking about, Mark tells us that he is in a boat. And uh, it's just, I've never been to the Holy Land, but so what they tell me is that the Sea of Galilee has lots of inlets. And so Jesus, remember, asked for a boat last in, the, in chapter 3 because the crowds were so big. 
So he would get in the boat, but it had lots of inlets where people could kind of come along the side, and you had this sort of natural amphitheater. And so I can't th think that's the scene, supposedly, that, that Jesus is preaching in. He's in a boat, and he's, he's preaching this. And he says something really, really important at the very beginning. He says, listen, hear. And I really believe that this is sort of a reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the, it's the prayer that every Jew knows by heart. It's really quick. He says, hear, O Israel, your God, Yahweh is your God. He is one. The Lord is your God. The Lord is one. And it's this thing that every Jew repeats every Sabbath. I mean, they, they know this. And I think this is kind of what Jesus is doing. Mark is recording this because he wants them to know this is the Shema. Listen to this. And Mark kind of does this sort of sandwich thing because at the end of the story, he repeats it again. He really wants us to, wants us to hear this. Listen, this is, I'm speaking with authority. And you might remember that Mark likes to talk about Jesus' authority and the healings and the, and the casting out the demons, that sort of thing. Well, here this teaching is authoritative. And he's saying this is authority. And he says this is the kind, this is the long-awaited kingdom. And he tells this story about the sword that Addie read. And he says that what he's saying here is that this is the long-awaited kingdom that we've been looking for, that we've been hoping that God would do, that he would come and dwell with us. And I think the story is basically sort of repeating, recapitulating the story of Israel. That God has laid out this word, he has spoken this word, and unfortunately it's met with some success, but mainly it's met with failure. And all, ever since Abraham, when God speaks to Abraham, he says, this is the word. And sometimes it's followed and sometimes it's not. It is with Moses in Egypt. This is the word. Elijah, this is the word. This is repentance. He does it with uh, Isaiah. He says, that, you, know, don't, you know, don't fret, don't fear Assyria. You know, Assyria is coming to conquer you, and they do. And he does it with Jeremiah. Here's the word, and they don't, they don't pay attention. Uh, Micah, it comes by, you know, this is, this is or Amos, it comes through. Uh, the word comes through is don't, don't commit the oppression that your oppressors has done to you, but they do it anyway. So they've listened to this word, and this is kind of a, telling you the story exactly of what Jesus, what God has done throughout history. And now Jesus is coming and he says, listen, finally listen, God is doing something, but it's something different. The word has gone out, has been rejected, but then it receives, if it receives something amazing, amazing will happen. So he's kind of retelling the story, but he talks about these four soil types. Ground by the footpath, the ground that's full of rocks, the ground that's thick with thorns, and the ground that is fertile. The footpath, there's no roots. It's kind of along the footpath. It doesn't say actually on the footpath, which is kind of interesting that uh, Jesus didn't use that, that preposition on the footpath. It was by it. We don't know why, but it does kind of make me think that that phrase is still used with Bartimaeus later on, the blind man, that he was by the path. But then when Jesus gave him sight, he was on the path. And I kind of wonder if there's sort of a connection there, but I'm probably overthinking it. Uh, but anyway, the next, the next ground is the full of rocks where it comes up, but then withers. There's no root there. And then the thick the, there's ground with the thorns that also comes up, but then is choked out by thorns. And then there's the ground that is fertile that produces a bumper crop.
there's lots of discussion about the Palestinian agricultural practices of why they didn't plow it before they planted the seed, or maybe they throw the seeds and then plow it over. Who knows? That's, a, that's not important. But the harvest is. And he says the harvest is 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. For a normal Palestinian farmer, they can expect a real bumper crop would be 7 to 1. 10 to 1 would be outrageous. And Jesus says this is 30, 60, 100, 100 to 1. This follows a long line of prophets. He finishes the story and he says, if you've got ears, you need to listen. You need to hear this. You need to understand. You need to pay attention. If you're interested, you, if you can hear this, you need to really listen, not just hear the noise. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. He is telling us that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is what we've been waiting on. This is what we've been hoping for. And he, and he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, and he mentions Isaiah in a little bit. We'll look at that. And I think he brings Isaiah into the picture, not just to prove his point, but to say this is part of the story. This is part of the line that God is doing. But I think what's really important here is the book of Daniel because they are hoping for it. And Daniel in chapter 2, he explains there's this, there's this statue with all these, these kingdoms in there. And then there's this stone coming that's not cut with human hands, but with God's hands, and, and fractures and destroys the kingdoms. And he becomes a kingdom. And in chapter 2, verse 44, he says, the kingdom will never end. This is the kingdom that will take over all kingdoms, and it will never end. And I think what Jesus is saying is this is that. This is what Daniel's been talking about. And he kind of repeats it with the four monsters that come up, I believe, in chapter 8. And he says, the one like the Son of Man will come and conquer the kingdoms, and his kingdom will never end. And it just so happened Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man, the human one. And I think what Mark and Jesus is saying in Mark's recording of this is saying that this is the fulfillment, the inauguration of the fulfillment that Daniel talked about. This is what we've been hoping for. And if you've got ears, you need to listen. You need to hear what's going on. Then there's this dark phrase, this dark section in here, where, where Mark says <clears throat> in verse 10, let me find it here. And then he was alone of the twelve, and the other disciples asked him about the parables, and he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they, mo they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding that they might turn and be forgiven. And that sounds really harsh. But what he's saying is that parables both reveal and they conceal. They offer mercy, but there's also judgment here. And I think what he is saying here is that this secret that he's been giving them, the word is actually mystery. And this mystery that he's been giving to them is for those who really want to hear, for those who really want to understand, and he relies on these parables to communicate that. And we'll notice that Jesus relies on parables when he faces conflict. Why is that? Because there are people who are hell-bent 
on stopping him. They are determined to execute him, and we just saw it in chapter 3. So we've just seen this culmination of this first kingdom campaign, and how did it end? With the Herodians the, the, and the scribes planning to execute him. And they said, no, he's not, he's not possessed by just a demon. He's possessed by the prince of demons. He is leading the people astray, and according to Deuteronomy 13, we need to execute him. And so Jesus speaks in parables. I think this is the, the best explanation for this is the simplest explanation. And that is, that is, if you speak directly and you confront the king, the priest, the authorities, then you don't last very long. There is another king who claims to be the king of the Jews, Herod Antipas. And when you confront his family, you don't last very long. And I think what Jesus is saying, we speak in parables, and I'm going to give you the mystery. I'm going to give you the story so that you understand because I trust you. You're not going to turn me in. We know, of course, one does eventually. But I trust you. But out in public, I've got to speak like this. I've got to talk about farming i got to talk about family conflicts. i got to talk about animal husbandry. i got to talk about looking for treasure. i got to talk about getting mugged. i got to talk about those things. But if you've got ears and you want to hear, you'll understand what I'm saying. Because you can't execute a guy just talking about sowing seeds. But if you're talking about somebody taking over and smashing the kingdom, then you're in trouble. And I really think that's the simplest answer, and I think it's the best answer of what Jesus is saying here. He's quoting Isaiah, which is also a chapter 6, which is also a send chapter. Remember, Isaiah says, you know, send me. Well, now Jesus is saying, God has sent me, and I'm going to send you. But we've got to be careful. It's not done yet, and I have to speak in parables. So he explains that to the disciples, and then he explains it to us in praise of dirt. I've been thinking about dirt a lot this week. Um, I, when we lived over in Oak Grove on Posh, uh, we practically had this field, we practically had a farm that we could, could, uh, could plant and go, grow our garden in. Um, my grandparents were cotton farmers, my dad raised Angus cattle, but I never had a farm until we went to Iowa and we were part of a community garden, and we got hooked on that. So I had this, basically this farm next to our house, and I got to play in the dirt. And uh, every one year, I planted a bunch of tomatoes in this place, had a lot of space, and I was looking for, I said, told Sue, I said, I'm going to have to go get some poles, I'm going to have to tie these up, and everything. She says, well, we've got cages up there by the barn. I said, yeah, but we don't have enough. She goes, well, how many do we need? How many more did you need? How many tomato plants you got up there? 65. <laughs> she was like, what? What are you doing with 65 tomato plants? And I, I planted them by seed in the, in the spring in a little greenhouse thing I have. And I said, they, they all did what I asked them to do. I, I couldn't kill them, you know. <laughs> they were all so obedient. 
And uh, so I had to plant them all, and um, the, uh, the other pastors were very happy because uh, I gave a bunch of them in food bank. I dropped some off the food bank, so we did get rid of them, but yeah, we had, that hasn't happened again. Uh, <clears throat> but now we just have these beds, which aren't, which aren't quite as fun. Uh, but we had this compost pile, and that, inside of that went the eggshells, the coffee grounds, the orange peels, you know, all this stuff, and it, and it enriched the soil, and I just really enjoyed playing in the dirt. Um, you know, like, you're, it's your childhood again, and you play in the dirt. It was really a lot of fun, and I don't get to play in the dirt as much with the beds. But dirt's great, and I got to thinking about this, and I'm thinking all that stinky, um, smelly stuff is what makes the ground fertile. And I got to thinking about that, about me, and about us, thinking, hmm, it's all that stinky, moldy garbage that we have inside. This is where Jesus plants the seed. This is where the seed of the gospel goes so that it can grow. And I'm thinking, that's amazing. I mean, if that's not resurrection power, I don't know what is. That can take all this junk and the seed be grounded and be planted and it produces 65 tomato plants. That's, that's just incredible. And so that's what he goes. He goes through and explains this, this praise of dirt. He explains the, the, uh, the, how the seed is planted and it produces harvest. And that's what the parable is all about. It's all about producing harvest. It's not about determining who's in and who's out. It's not determining who's saved and who's not saved. It's not our questions. It's about the harvest. And it's about how the seed gets planted in fertile soil, even all the junk, even the stinky stuff, and the resurrection power gives life. And it produces a harvest. God loves dirt. He loves fertile dirt because that's where the seed of the gospel goes. And that is resurrection power. The emphasis here is on the harvest. It's the whole reason for the parable. Jesus loves to take earthy stories and tell us what God is doing in them. What we were doing as seminary students, we were taking this good earthy story and making it some heavenly principle away from the earth, away from us. Some, something that God's going on in his mind. When exactly it is an earthy story about what's going on in earth, on earth right now. This is not just some uh, um, a strategy. This is something that's realistic. This is something that's grounded. This is something that God is doing. And he takes this mystery that he's telling the disciples and he's using mundane, everyday dirt terms to tell us what's going on to tell us what this, all this is all about. I have spent way too many years worrying about what kind of dirt I am. To be honest, this week alone, I was probably dirt with thorns, I was probably dirt with rock, I was probably dirt with the path, and maybe a little bit of fertile earth as well. And I've spent, wasted so much time worrying about what kind of dirt I am. 
And I've looked at it and thought, well, gee, I got about a three to one odds here that I'm not the right kind of dirt. That's not very good odds. But that's not what this is all about. This is about the harvest. Jesus calls it a mystery. And not a mystery in the sense that it's a puzzle, but it's the secret plan of Yahweh to come and rescue humanity. To come and rescue us. And he's not going to do it with a blaze of glory, a blaze of triumph with swords. He's not going to do it by buying his way through it, through the kingdom. He's not going to do it by taking over the government and doing it. He's doing it with us producing a harvest. That's what he's doing. It's that simple. Just about the harvest. So what do we learn about this? About the harvest? Well, the harvest cannot be canned, controlled, or produced on demand. It is something that is planted in us. It's something that God does. Um, we can, all we can do is to provide the right atmosphere. We have to provide the place where we can receive the sunlight and, and receive the water. The growth depends on Him. The harvest is His. It's not that. It, the harvest is, is what He does. It's not manifestations of, of, of speaking in tongues. It's not memorizing Bible verses. It's not um, <clears throat> making some proving that I'm right or wrong. Those are all fine things. Bible verses, of course, they're great. To, you know, speaking in tongues, manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that's all fine. That's all great. But it's not the same thing as a harvest. The harvest is something else. The harvest is a transformation. It's life that comes out. All those other things is like adding the water and, and supplying the sun. We study the Bible to provide fertilizer for the soil we pray to receive the rain from the sky that's what we do that's what the action comes in and the growth is his the growth is all about his um, the harvest is not just some monopoly on on correct doctrine it is real life real rescue operation that god is doing the harvest is the product of a growth process not a one-moment response. And see, that's where we went wrong as seminary students. We were looking at it as this one, one response, this one action that we did that would determine your soil. But it's clearly a process here. It clearly takes time. It's not something that just happens today and tomorrow, I'm a good soil. It's just a process that we do. It's a... Uh, it's a one-moment transformation that starts us, but then it goes on and on and on. <clears throat> Paul helps us understand what this harvest looks like. In Romans, he tells the Romans, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He goes in Colossians, he says, So that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, full, please, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. Then he goes on to say, they will have limitless endurance, long-suffering, patience, joy, and thanksgiving. This is what it looks like. Paul's very helpful in showing us what this harvest looks like. 
In Galatians, he says this, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, we could say the harvest, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, or goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these such things. This is what the fruit looks like. This is what the harvest looks like. The harvest requires constant soil cultivation. Like I said, it's not just one thing and then you go off your way. It is this lifelong process that we continue to do, that we continue to cultivate. Uh, it is not uh, condemnation. It's not arrogance uh, of who we are or what we are. It's just this constant, constant cultivation. And I believe this is what Jesus is talking about when he quotes Isaiah about uh, not having eyes to see or ears to hear. And, you know, they are... They, we speak in parables so they don't understand. I don't think he's talking about, I don't think he's speaking with arrogance and anger here. I think he's speaking with pity. I think he's feeling sad about them, about them not being able to understand because they refuse to understand. Um, it's repairing of this damaged heart and not being distracted by or attracted by other things and according to this you know if the seed falls on the path or by the path it's it just doesn't take root if we're just not interested if we just don't want to hear and if we fall if the seed falls you know with the with the um he said satan's still hovering when he talks about the birds coming and picking it up satan still hovers over us he's not completely bound yet but he will be when we land in the rocks, we, have the, we spring up, but we just don't have a lot of roots, not a lot of depth. We're not cultivating it very well, so we kind of wither away. Or with the thorns, he says, you know, the thorns are like riches or other things, which pretty much covers everything else. You know, anything you want to look at that's, that's, that distracts us from that. When we become obsessed with something else, it could be work, it could be family, it could be good things. But when that takes the place, we get choked out. But then the fertile soil needs to be cultivated. And we still live in the world where worries can still consume us. We still live in a world that greed still tugs at our hearts. We live in a world where insecurities still haunt us, where life still demands a lot from us. We can't just put it on cruise control and think we're going to go through this all unscathed. It takes a constant cultivation. And finally, the harvest means that we are world changers. That we're the right, when they're the right soil, we are the world changers. It doesn't mean to prove that I'm right or we're all right. It's all about the harvest. It's not proving that I'm right or proving you're wrong or proving that we've got it all figured out. It's all about the harvest. Jim Wallace says, <clears throat> what I discover again and again is the two things that happen when people of faith actually say and do what their faith says they should say and do. First, people are surprised. And second, they are attracted. That's where the harvest comes in. That's where harvest comes in. If anybody should know about repentance and reconciliation, it ought to be us that knows about those things. If there's anybody who's able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, 
I repent of that. It was terrible. It ought to be us who says those things. Reconciliation is hard. And we have a lot of words that try to, try to bring about, you know, together, everybody together, diversity, tolerance, um, acceptance, you know, all those things, equal access, equal rights. We have all those great words. Those are fine words, but they're not reconciliation. That's much harder. And if anybody ought to be able to do it, it ought to be us. If anybody ought to know what it's like to be reconciled, it ought to be us. And we can do that. Those are good words. Tolerance is a good thing. But it's not love. It's on the way to love. You can't really love someone you can't tolerate. But it doesn't stop there. It's on the way to that. And if anybody ought to know how to love, it ought to be us. If anybody knows how to reconcile, it ought to be us. Jesus says this is a mysterious plan. But it's not going to be carried out by the Herodian dynasty. It's not going to be carried out by the movement of the Pharisees. It's not going to be carried out by the actions of the high priest. It's not going to be carried out by the plotting of the revolutionaries. It's not going to be carried out by the Republicans. It's not going to be carried out by the Democrats. It's going to be carried out by people who produce a harvest. The fertile soil is carried out by Jesus going to the cross in his death and resurrection who turns failure into victory he turns servanthood into power he converts hatred into love he converts revenge into forgiveness death into life that's the harvest and we are promised in the new new testament that the harvest will happen the party will go on and the house will be full. That's the harvest. That's what this story is about. Is having the seed planted on the good fertile soil with all the orange rinds and all the eggshells and all the coffee grounds and all the wilty lettuce and it produces life. It produces tomato plants. And that's the harvest. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That's his plan. And we get to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful so much for the life that you've given us. We want to submit to that. We want to be converted every day. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be attracted by other things. We want to serve you. Our identification is in you. And that's where we live. It's in the name of the Savior we pray. Amen.